Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Whether you call it football or soccer in your part of the world, Match of the Day Africa Top 10 is the podcast from the BBC World Service ranking the best African players. This guy is recognised as the best in the world. Teams. Ball coming, turn, boom. And the biggest moments in African football. The whole world remembers that. Remember that, yeah. It's not just African fans. Match of the Day Africa Top 10. Find it wherever you get your BBC podcasts. This is World Business Report from the BBC World Service. Hello, I'm Rahul Tan, and plenty coming up in the programme. As always, can the shipping industry become greener? And who's going to pay for it? Ships carry 80 to 90% of the goods we all consume around the world, and as a result, they use huge amounts of fuel, and often the fuel they use is the cheapest and the most carbon-intensive fuels. And why a shortage of chilies might mean that you're paying a lot more for your hot sauce. Vivian Nunes is going to spice up the programme in about 20 minutes' time. But we're going to start by talking about relations between the world's two largest economies, China and the US. Because the US Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, has announced that she will be going to China later this week. Could that lead to an improvement in relations between these two economies, which has such a big impact on the global economy as well? Well, Janet Yellen has made lots of comments recently about those relations with China. Let's have a listen. We seek a healthy economic relationship with China, one that fosters growth and innovation in both countries. A growing China that plays by international rules is good for the United States and the world. Both countries can benefit from healthy competition in the economic sphere. But healthy economic competition, where both sides benefit, is only sustainable if this competition is fair. We will continue to partner with our allies to respond to China's unfair economic practices, and we will continue to make critical investments at home while engaging with the world to advance our vision for an open, fair, and rules-based global economic order. So it's going to be interesting to see what Janet Yellen says to her Chinese counterparts. Let's get the thoughts of Miles Yu, former China advisor to the Trump administration, now director of the China Center at the Hudson Institute. Miles, thanks so much for joining us here on World Business Report. We've seen in the last few weeks a huge change between the US and China, haven't we? They didn't seem to want to talk. Now they're talking a lot. What difference is that going to make now? Well, the difference is that Chinese economy is in shambles. So the the China needs the rest uh, in general and the United States in particular much more than the other way around. So that's why they agree to talk. Uh, but 
China is still in the condition by passing a whole bunch of laws, counter-espionage laws, and uh, strengthen its ideological and the political control of foreign investments. So what Secretary Janet uh, Yellen um, uh, is trying to do is to tell Chinese, hey, listen, you know, we like to love to talk and welcome back, but we have to really uh, follow the rules and uh, to be fair, and most importantly, to follow the mechanism of market. So that's something that... Uh, that I think uh, the, her main uh, objective is to tell the Americans' condition to re-engage. And uh, if, if China's economy wants to come back and uh, it needs the world, and we have to, to play in the new game. Okay, it's interesting what you say there about the Chinese economy, maybe not reaching the growth rate of 5% that it wants to have this year. What sort of compromises do you think then we could see the Chinese offer to try and make sure that American investment continues to move into China? It's a very, that's a very good question. It's very hard to say because uh, there are two uh, major uh, forces at play in China. The economic team, which is led by the Chinese uh, new uh, prime, uh, premier, uh, Li Chang, I think he's trying to sort of, you know, to be more uh, accommodating to the demands of the uh, uh, of the U.S. and the West because uh, uh, there's no other way, uh, the way he sees it. But there's a, remember, China is also dominated not by economic team, but by the political team. So uh, on the political side, China strengthened its its uh, its groundhold on foreign uh, investments, particularly on foreign due diligence agencies, the mm. agencies that can find out the economic reality of China. So China basically wants to basically uh, strike hard against those those things. Yeah. So I mean, it, it, it is difficult to say. I don't know how uh, Secretary General can find the balance and to in, just engage with the economic team. Uh, seems to be like uh, her main interlocutors uh, without considering the political reality of China, which is basically uh, pretty much like a, a Chinese Communist Party rule uh, country without uh, really a fundamental market mechanism. Do you think China is getting very concerned at the moment about the fact, you know, the trade between the two countries still huge, a record $690 billion last year. But what we are definitely seeing is a decline in Chinese imports into the U.S. And are they getting more and more worried about those supply chains moving to the likes of Vietnam and India? Yeah, this is all China's making. Right? The China's main line of argument in uh, dealing with the United States is that the United States should bear all, I mean, all responsibility for the worsening of the relationship. It's not realistic. China, uh, you cannot expect... But the, but the U.S. States. is responsible to some extent for that as well, isn't it? Well, we, we're a player, but we, we can we can facilitate the direction. We can change the the the, the nature. But unless China play the game, unless China comes back to to say, hey, listen, you know, uh, let's just figure out exactly where the problem is. China wants the United States to say nothing uh, when the entire economic, political, and military uh, machine is focusing on, say, locking up a million riggers in Xinjiang, that's not realistic, right? We have to engage China not because, yeah. not okay. just on very narrow scope, but also much broader spectrum. The Chinese, of course, would, would deny that's what they're doing in that particular part of the country. Can, can I ask you a final question? A lot yes, of the please. world will be closely following the talks that take place when Janet Yellen lands in China later this week, because it's important for the global economy, isn't it, that the two great economies and not at an economic war with each other. What is this trip going to achieve, do you think? I think that uh, Secretary Janet Yellen tries to establish a workable, operational uh, channel of communication with the economic team of Chinese government. Um, so that's something that, uh, that uh, uh, she's trying to do. And also, she's actually uh, in a better position than, than before because, um, uh, as I say, China needs the West 
mm. to a greater extent right now because Chinese economy, Chinese uh, military even, uh, is fundamentally and critically dependent upon Western technology and and particularly export uh, uh, from the West. So I think, uh, but we have to engage China on a much more uh, fair and the rules-based um, um, uh, uh, term of discourse. And that's what, the, what I think she's trying to do. Well, all I have to say is good luck, Secretary Janet. Well, Janet. Let's, let's see what happens. Miles, thanks so much for joining us here on the program. Let's bring in Rachel Winter, partner and investment manager at Killick. Uh, the markets are going to like the fact, aren't they, surely, Rachel, that the world's two great economies are at least talking to each other once again? Exactly. So I'd be very surprised to see many specific agreements coming out of this meeting. But just the fact that the meeting is happening should give the markets confidence. Investors do buy and sell shares depending on how confident they feel. And therefore, the fact that this meeting is happening, I think, will encourage more investors to buy shares. A lot more on those meetings later on in the week here on World Business Report. But Miles talked about it there in the China over the weekend, the country introduced those new anti-espionage laws. It's an issue that Janet Yellen is likely to raise on that particular trip. Let's get more on these new laws from Peter Humphreys, who's a former Reuters journalist and a former fraud investigator in China. There was a sort of potted summary of it given by a senior official of China's National People's Congress a month or two ago. He didn't release the whole text, but he indicated that pretty much all kinds of information regardless uh, how you obtain it, and that could include orally obtaining information, everything would now be potentially subject to this espionage law. This is a huge change because it could mean that you have a conversation with someone, you ask them questions about a particular industry, and that is deemed off-limits. Or you could be asking for some straightforward records of a company's incorporation, and that could be deemed off-limits. You could be conducting research online on publicly available Chinese databases, and if they decide that's a a national security threat, they can deem that activity off-limits. So it's really a very huge change. A lot of what you're talking about is what businesses have to do on a day-to-day basis. All of these things are things that businesses have to do on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, whether you're in the marketing department of a manufacturing company or a research department in a manufacturing company or um, due diligence third-party firm, a consultancy, you are vulnerable. And all of the things that you've been doing day-to-day for years are now vulnerable to prosecution under this new law. And this new law carries huge penalties if they choose to inflict them. We have seen, haven't we, already some companies in China, we saw Bain Capital, what happened with them and the raids that took place there. Do you think it's going to be possible to conduct business in China for many companies with the new laws that are coming into effect? I think that it's going to be impossible to conduct businesses now in China, including due diligence, you know, and companies that don't do due diligence are actually flying blind. So they become very vulnerable. Due diligence is one of the basic practices within businesses operating in a market economy, whereby they look into the background track record, affiliations, ownership, and so forth, any record of criminality. They look into these things with regard to any potential business partner they're thinking about signing a contract with. It could be an acquisition, it could be signing a big distribution agreement and so forth. You need to know who you're dealing with. So due diligence is the process that helps them find out. All of these things now are potentially illegal in China under the new law. You are somebody who was arrested in China, weren't you, for 
basically undertaking due diligence. Tell us about your experiences and do you think we will see many more cases like yours now? I was operating my own due diligence consultancy for 10 years successfully until 2013, just after Xi Jinping came to power in China. They started tightening up on information flows and my company was investigating a former executive of our client and this particular target found out about the investigation and had me and my wife arrested. In those days, if anyone was arrested or questioned over due diligence work, it was usually under the criminal clause which covers the illegal acquiring of personal information. And that's the law that was applied to me at the time. And the maximum sentence for that was like three years potentially in jail, although nobody really ever got that much until they decided to do it to me. But you know, nowadays, under this new law, you could be looking at life sentences and even a death sentence in a serious case. Do you understand, though, that there are rising tensions, aren't there, between China and the US, and both sides are taking actions to protect themselves. And it is a fact, isn't it, that there is espionage that does take place in the business world. Certainly, we know that countries spy on each other. Espionage is one of the old tools of, of diplomacy. But we're not talking about that here. We are talking about basic functions of normal businesses. And that is what is being obstructed. So it's reached a point where it's becoming impossible to do any business safely at all in China. Janet Yellen will be in China later this week. Do you expect her to raise this issue with her Chinese counterparts? I suspect she may raise the issues of due diligence in relation to the new espionage law. I wish that she would also raise the issue of imprisoned foreigners in general, because, you know, we've seen quite a number of business people imprisoned for this or that false uh, charge over the last 10 years, I being the first one. And I don't think that the US, the UK and a number of other governments in Europe are robust enough in, in signalling to China that they will no longer tolerate this diplomatic hostage taking and these false imprisonments, which still continue today. As we heard, there are plenty for Janet Yellen to discuss when she goes to China. Another issue on the agenda will be the issue of debt relief. China is Africa's biggest bilateral lender. The continent is facing a severe funding squeeze at the moment. The IMF's top official in the region has been telling Ed Butler more about this. It's been a very tricky time for Africa in recent months. I mean, the context, of course, is around the world is rising prices, right? Everyone is facing that challenge. And because of rising prices, we've got a rising cost of borrowing with central banks pushing up interest rates. And that often tends to hit the lowest income countries the worst because they are having to pay so much more for the credit that they need to keep going. Countries in sub-Saharan Africa, for instance, almost a third of them, according to the World Bank, are now either in debt distress, which means that they simply can't pay back what they currently owe to lenders, or they're at severe risk of that. And I've been talking to Abe Selassie, he's the African Programme Director at the International Monetary Fund, about those challenges. Nobody, you know, four or five years ago anticipated there's a huge macroeconomic shocks that countries were to be hit by since the onset of the pandemic. Economies tanked, governments had to spend to support people, to support their economies, to support businesses. So that's why uh, countries are facing the debt difficulties that they are. Which countries are you most fearful for? Well, right now, of course, countries like Ghana, uh, Zambia, 
we do need a moment where the international community really comes together to recognize that there are really profound financing challenges in the region so that they are given time to get out of the difficulties that they have and providing them the resources so that they can invest in health, in education and critical infrastructure over the next decade. We talk about Africa a lot, don't we? Of course, it's many different countries with many different experiences. Are we seeing a common response across the countries? No, we're not. I mean, you're right to say some countries, Ghana and Zambia and others, are, have, have have had to call in the International Monetary Fund. But, you know, others are doing better. I mean, actually, Zambia is one of those countries which has certain mineral assets which will, could, I mean, currently are and will continue to count in their favor because these include things like cobalt, they include lithium, uh, nickel. These are all very important metals in what we call the energy transition. That is the things we need to make batteries and other electronics that are crucial to battery storage. And battery storage is what, of course, China and Western countries are all competing to bulk up right now as we switch to more electric economies, electric driven economies, electric vehicles, and so on. Now, those countries in Southern Africa that have these assets are really enjoying something of a boom, many of them. But there are also those who will argue that what Africa actually needs is to find more answers for itself. I mean, free trade between African countries is supposed to be something that's developing right now. It's happening slower than some people would like. I've been speaking to Amy Jadassimi about this. She's a, a Nigerian businesswoman. She's in charge of LADOL, which is a free trade area in the port of Lagos. And she reckons Africa can't expect, despite you know those mineral assets, it can't expect very much help from the outside world at a time when interest rates are so high and, and growth is so slow. We need to look inward and get to a level of development using our own resources and our own currency that enables us to engage with foreign investors in a conversation between equals. I think in terms of funding, we have to be realistic and accept that the international community is not going to give us the billions of dollars we need to industrialize on terms that enable us to industrialize. You know, one of my passions and visions is to see, you know, made in Nigeria as a stamp of quality that's respected throughout the world. And we will get there. The thoughts there of Amy Jadassimi. Now, she's a Nigerian businesswoman and very much pulling together this sense that at a time of strife, particularly for low income countries like those in sub-Saharan Africa, really countries cannot look to the West and to China and other big nations to help them. They're going to have to start helping themselves. The thoughts there of Ed Butler. And if you listen to Business Daily this week, you'll hear a range of voices looking at the investment situation regarding the continent of Africa, of course, made up of many different countries with many different economic situations. This is World Business Report from the BBC World Service. The head of the International Energy Agency has told the BBC that he cannot rule out governments having to help people pay very high energy bills in Europe this winter. Dr Fateh Barol is the executive director of the IEA, which works with countries and companies around the world to shape energy policy. He told Sean Farrington that Europe made a mistake by being so dependent on Russian gas. 
you should never rely on one single country. Even it is the most innocent country, most friendly country, you don't do that. The reliance reached to 49-50% of the gas used in Europe, which is unprecedented. Is it a possibility we could see a spike in gas prices and energy prices again this winter that take us back to the kind of levels that we saw last year and governments having to step in and pay for bills? We cannot rule it out in a scenario where the Chinese economy is very strong, buys a lot of energy from the markets, and we have harsh winter we may see strong upward pressure on the natural gas prices, which in turn will put extra burden on the consumers. Do you think blackouts are more or less likely this winter? I think they are less likely, but they are not unlikely. We do not know yet how strong the Chinese economy rebound. And we have seen in the past several times strong rebound of Chinese economy hit major implications for the global economy and we don't know still how harsh the winter will be so we should be ready we should be alerted and i wouldn't rule out the black arts are not a part of the game dr fatty birol there let's bring rachel winter back into this conversation it's a long time since we've talked about gas prices i think on the program but even though we are in the summer here in the Northern Hemisphere, a lot of businesses, a lot of governments will be looking at this and worrying about what may happen in the winter, won't they? There will. There will be planning ahead. I would be surprised if prices went up to where they were shortly after Russia invaded Ukraine. But despite that, I wouldn't be surprised to see a spike this winter. It all depends on supply versus demand. But I think most countries around the world around the world have worked very hard to increase their supply. They've also worked very hard to top up their storage. So I think that will help to prevent blackouts over the course of this winter. Rachel, I want to get your thoughts on this now. Delegates from 175 countries as we're speaking at the moment are meeting in London. And it's an important meeting because they're discussing carbon emissions from global shipping. The International Maritime Organization is under a lot of pressure at the moment to try and limit harmful gases from the industries, which are equivalent to those produced by Germany every single year. In a video address to the delegates, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres urged maritime countries to move quicker in reducing those emissions. Science tells us it is still possible to limit global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius, but it requires an immense and immediate global effort. And shipping, which accounts for almost 3% of global emissions, will be vital. I urge you to leave London having agreed on a greenhouse gas strategy that commits the sector to net zero emissions by 2050 at the latest. This must include all greenhouse gas emissions and cover the whole value chain. Such targets will provide the certainty that the industry and investors need. That's what people want is certainty. Do you think there may be fears, though, from many businesses that this move to producing less emissions could drive up the cost of shipping? Rachel. Oh, sorry, I didn't realise that was a question for me. Yes, I do indeed. Um, so shipping at the moment, it's very difficult to make shipping carbon neutral because it's still so dependent on fossil fuels. We've done work on other types of vehicle, for example, lorries and cars to make them carbon neutral, mainly by including batteries. But really, because batteries are so heavy, you wouldn't want one on a ship. So there's a lot of work going on to develop alternatives to fossil fuels to be used in the shipping industry. But I think that will be expensive and it will take time. Quick one on Tesla for you, Rachel. Some good figures that have come out 
over the weekend in terms of the number of cars that they're selling, those price cuts having an impact? Yes. So over the last few months, Tesla has quite dramatically cut its prices across some areas, particularly China. And that was in response to lower prices from competitors within China. And it really seems to have made an impact on Tesla's demand. Demand for their cars has clearly picked up and their sales numbers for the last quarter were much better than expected. There we go. We can't do a program without mentioning Elon Musk at some particular stage of it. Let's go to Mexico now, because a drought there means that there's a shortage of chili peppers and in particular red jalapenos. The hot vegetables are the raw material of a type of sauce called Sriracha. The leading company which produces it says that production could be paused until September. Disastrous news for many people. I welcome back Vivian Nunes to our business team. And you've been following this story as our Sriracha expert, I believe. Thanks, Rahul. Yeah, this is the Sriracha sauce made by the California-based company Hoi Fong Foods. It dates back to the 1980s, actually, when David Tran, a Vietnamese immigrant who was fleeing the war in Vietnam, landed in California and not finding any chilli sauce that he wanted to buy, decided to start making his own. He devised a recipe based on the hot sauce originating in the Thai city, Sriracha, giving the product its name. Now, you might recognise the bottle, Rahul, from the rooster Mm, icon that's on it uh, and the green plastic screw top. But as you say, because of a lack of rainfall in Mexico, those hot red jalapeno chilies haven't been growing uh, in such abundance as they usually do. And that's causing the company to scale back production, leading to shortages. Now, I went to investigate whether this was a worldwide problem. I went down to Chinatown here in Manchester and went into some Asian supermarkets. Now, Surprisingly, there was plenty of sriracha oh, really? sauce on the shelves, but that's because there's a company in Europe, well, a company available uh, supplying to us here in Europe that manufactures their product in Thailand. They're a company called Flying Goose. Now, their bottle looks a lot like the Hoi Fong bottle. Instead of a rooster, there's a goose logo. Some might call it a sriracha imitator. Uh, the Flying Goose brand, though, probably argue that since their product is actually made in Thailand, theirs is the real deal. But putting all that aside, uh, yeah, because Flying Goose supplies their range of chilli sauce to stockists in the UK and Germany and other countries in Europe. There doesn't seem to be a shortage here. But what appears to be happening is that while there is a shortage in the US, uh, the kind that we can get is is not a problem. So some savvy shoppers have decided to exploit that mismatch Ooh. in supply and demand. Alan Alian lives in County Carlo in Ireland. And when he heard about the US shortage for sriracha, he immediately went to the store and bought some. I wasn't expecting anything from it. Just wanted to see what would happen. And then I posted it on eBay. And a day later, I woke up in the morning and I had a guy that wanted to purchase seven bottles uh, from me. So I went ahead and actually made like $700 off of uh, seven bottles of, of the sauce, which was crazy. I guess it's just like what someone's willing to pay for something if they desperately want want it. And it's so far it's doing good. I know it's not going to last forever, but I kind of try and ride the, the bandwagon as, as long as I can on it. Why wouldn't you if $700 for an outlay of 21 euros? That's pretty cool. Go on, give us the economics around this. You're going to educate us. Yeah, for a this is known as arbitrage. That's when sellers take advantage of differences in prices in two different markets. So they exploit that difference buying cheaply in one product and selling the uh, in one market and selling the product at a profit in another market. Now. This won't last forever, but while that demand for sriracha isn't being met in the US, there's certainly an opportunity for money to be made. Rahul, you and I would probably do better to be going down to the shops and stocking up ourselves. Well, I did wonder what you bought back in that very large bag when you came back, <laughs> but no, you didn't.
didn't bring anything back. Viv, thank you very much. We're going to hear a lot more from Viv, who is back with us once again after a break away for a short period of time. But we'll hear a lot more of her on our programmes over the course of the next few weeks or so. Rachel, quick one for you if you're still there. Are you a Sriracha fan? No, not at all. Cannot handle the spice. Oh, dear me. Well, there we go, Rachel. Thank you. You've done so well on the programme up till now. <laughs> but we do like a bit of spice on the programme. And we will continue to follow what is happening with those Sriracha prices. But that is it for this edition of World Business Report. Will Bain will be here with Business Matters later. Hi, Yaya Touré here for a brand new podcast from the BBC World Service. Match of the day. Africa Top 10. Join me and follow footballers Gabriel Zakwani. Hello. And Ifan Okuku. Hi. As we choose our top 10 from the best of Africa football. We're not here to play football, but to argue about all things African football. That's match of the day. Africa top 10. Find it wherever you get your BBC podcast. <laughs> 